Okay, so we are reading from Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and it's on the page um, 1036 in the Blue Church Bibles. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. Matt, if you could um, keep your Bibles open, that would be a real help to me as we look at this uh, passage together, as we hear God speak to us through it. just need to get a few books together. But let's just pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you and praise you that you know the hearts of each and every one of us here this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you know our weaknesses, our sins. Thank you that you know what we need to hear this morning. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be our teacher from heaven. You would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would show us more of what you are like, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we might love you and, and live for you a bit better in the week ahead, or that we might come to know you for the first time. 
And we pray this for your glory alone, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we're considering this morning, from this passage, as we work our way through uh, the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel, a particular interest of Luke, which is that of the relationship that Jesus has with women. And yet, I don't know whether we are deeply affected by the culture that we live in as we, as we come to this topic. I only need to mention the names of Sarah Everard or Ashling Murphy. And we think of the horrific violence that is perpetrated against women. We all know that women are increasingly objectified through pornography, which it seems is increasingly accessible to children and boys as they grow up as teenagers. There seems to be a pandemic of toxic masculinity and misogyny. Not only do women not feel safe, those who should protect them, members of the Met Police with Sarah Everard, or a father of five with Ashling. Murphy are the perpetrators. As a father of daughters, it's sickening. And it's not just a Western problem, is it? Whilst exhibited in our news uh, feeds in different ways and in different cultures, we hear of murders in custody for failing to wear the right clothes in Iran or gang rapes in India. It is horrific, is it not? What is the solution? Now, this is a massive topic, and I can't hope to do justice to the biblical solution in 25 minutes. So I'm going to recommend some books, which I hope is not a cop-out. Um, but we've uh, plugged this book in the past. It's really an excellent book. Uh, there's a few copies left. We can get some more. I'll put the links um, on, on our WhatsApp group uh, later. Liberated by Karen Saul. How the Bible exalts and dignifies women, which might be surprising to some of us. How can the Bible exalt and dignify women? Surely isn't that the source of patriarchy, the very thing that oppresses women? Or Ros, Ros Clark's book, 40 Women, uh, a really helpful um, series of studies of women in the Bible that we work through in our Lent series, men and women. Um, and, and there's a couple of other recommendations. Uh, the Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. I haven't got a copy here, but she argues as a secular woman that uh, marriage is where it's at for freedom when it comes to women. Who'd have known? Or Melvin Bragg's book, uh, where he recounts how the impact of the King James Version, 1611, um, led to the freedom, the emancipation of women in our culture in many ways. Anyway, I commend those books to you. Three dangers, I think, that we face as we come to this topic. One danger, I think, and many of us will be aware of this, is the ideology in our culture which says the way in which to protect women is to pretend that men and women are exactly the same. They're not defined in any sense by biology, but by a combination of society, inner feelings, and choice that anyone can choose to be a woman, whoever they are, however they are born. And many women 
find this problematic and see the danger that it could lead to the further oppression of women because women will no longer exist. I think that's one danger. I'm, I know that that's controversial, but come and talk to me afterwards if you want. Another danger I think that we face is that fathers are seen to be the problem. As I've already mentioned, patriarchy is such a dirty word, the rule of fathers, it, it is probably an irredeemable word. And it's true that absent, oppressive fathers destroy both men and women. But the danger is that that does not necessarily mean there is no such thing as a good father. And maybe, just maybe, good patterns of masculinity, good fathers may be one of the answers to the problem that we're facing. A loving masculinity that should be the top priority for any man in the church. And we cannot assume that we've got it right, men. And I speak from my own experience in this. So the danger of eradicating the definition of what it means to be a woman, the, the danger of dismissing whether fathers and men are part of the solution of the future, and another danger, and I think this is one that is closer to home for us, is the danger of denying the reality of misogyny and the oppression of women by men in church. In churches like this one. Complementarian churches and denominations which we are a part of. That is, seeking to put into practice the teaching of Jesus and Paul on how men and women are to relate regarding leadership in the church. It could very easily and sadly even recently has become misogynistic if we are not careful. Very careful. So those are three of the dangers, I think. We just need to map out before we begin looking at what I think is the solution, what the Bible says is the solution to this most pressing of problems. What is it? Jesus Christ. He is the solution. We will see in Jesus Christ a beautiful response to women, sinful women, the most sinful of women. And that's our first point. Jesus the Christ perfectly accepts the devotion of sinful women. There's a lot of preamble in this sermon because I'm conscious that this topic touches all of us deeply. And so it's important that we are careful as we come to the Bible, that we don't make the Bible say things that it does not, which is very, very common in the church of our day. So forgive me, giving us some background detail. Firstly, if you look with me at verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. I don't know when was the last time you reclined at table. We need to understand the cultural context. This is the Roman way of having a meal in a room called the triclinium. A central circular table had couches radiating out from it. And those dining would lie down, would recline with their head towards the table where they could eat and converse. And their feet were sticking out away from the table. They reclined to eat. It's the same at the Lord's Supper, despite all the paintings that you might have seen. They were lying down. 
Secondly, this would have been a private area in the Roman house, but it would have had access from the street. In first century Roman houses, there was public entrances for business and private areas for dining. So this woman had come in off the street. She wasn't being rude. She hadn't sort of bashed the door down. That was how houses worked, if they were according to the Roman scheme in the first century. And thirdly, and this is important, the culture of the day would have kissed one another, men and women, in order to be hospitable. Like if you've ever been to France, you're trying to work out how many kisses is it? <laughs> There's nothing sexual in that. In, in other ways, to wash a person's feet was the role of the slave, as we know from John 13. And to kiss the feet was not never heard of in public because that's how you showed homage to your king or your ruler. So we can imagine the scene. Let's just try and picture the scene. Jesus reclined at table with Simon and the other guests and in comes a woman who we are told in verse 37 lived a sinful life. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, it is likely she was a prostitute. She's known by the town as a sinful woman. This is a common phrase when sometimes the list is tax collectors and prostitutes. And we know that from other incidents that are similar to this, but not identical, that this happened to Jesus more than once. And she stood behind Jesus' feet, weeping, why is she weeping? And at this stage, it's not clear, though it becomes clear. Simon assumes that Jesus doesn't know what this woman is like, or he wouldn't let her do this. What does Jesus let her do? Verse 38, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. You can imagine Jesus lying down and looking back at the woman as she weeps over his feet. Kiss them and poured perfume on them, wiping them with her hair. Now, it's important to know that while some of the things she's doing have no sexual connotations, others do. For us, kissing is more sexual than it was for that culture. Less for the culture of Jesus' day, kissing, but for them, hair was far more sexualized. Greek women were to cover their hair, as were Jewish women, because their hair was a sexual thing. So as she dries Jesus' feet with her hair, it is slightly risque. And Simon reacts to this, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. You see, Simon assumes that Jesus does not know her sinfulness or he wouldn't let her do this. But Luke has already made it clear, has he not, that Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the Son of God, the Christ, God incarnate, who can forgive sins as he did for the paralytic, who has come for people who are sick of sin, who's cleansed lepers, who's raised the dead in chapter 6, who will go on to calm storms. He is God, come to help his people, as even the crowd recognize. But Jesus perfectly accepts 
the devotion of this sinful woman. And it's not just who Jesus accepts, but how he accepts. You see, that Jesus, as we will see, forgives and saves this sinful woman, forgives her of her sin, is wonderful. But he does it with perfect purity. There's no embarrassment. There's no recoil. Should I allow her to do this for me? He perfectly accepts the devotion of this sinful woman because he knows she is forgiven. She is right with him. He's about to say that. Now, women, just I'm going to make some applications this morning that are, are more specific. And I'm not denying that there's not applications for all of us as human beings because we share humanity whether we are men or women. But women, here is a man approached by a sinful woman without perfect propriety and there is no whiff of inappropriate response in Jesus. You can picture the scene. He is most interested in her as a human being and her relationship with God, in her restoration, in accepting her devotion in a pure and spiritual way. And she may have been slightly risque, but he was not. In her love for him, she may have pushed the boundaries a little. She was distraught, vulnerable, immodest. Jesus did not take advantage. Here was a man who, with whom she could be entirely safe. Wouldn't it be great if there were a few more men like that? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great if some man, men were taking Jesus as the pattern of their masculinity and wanted to be like him like this? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be the beginning of a solution to what we see around us in our society, in our world? And then for us as men... Here is the model we are given of being a Christian man. Uh, of course, we're not to expect worship. Sorry if that's a disappointment. The universe is not about you. It is about one man, Jesus Christ. Do you want to be like him? If you've put your faith in him, he is your pattern, your model, not just of sinless humanity, but of sinless masculinity. He was a male, a man. We're not excused inappropriate behavior or thoughts by immodesty amongst women. We don't blame them for our sinful behavior. The perfect man never took advantage, even in his mind. And Christian men say, oh, but you know, Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. Surely we're not expected to be the same. Well, that's too high a bar, isn't it? No. It's not the perspective of the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 5, all God's people are commanded, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Presumably because there was the temptation for the unholy kind. Even in the culture of the day, physical affection was to be expressed within cultural norms of purity. Physical courtesy, yes, but holy. And then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul, as we know, who lies behind this gospel, Luke was Paul's traveling companion, Paul commands in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Christian leaders treat younger men as brothers, 
older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That is what Christian leaders are called to. Who does not feel that they fall short of that? But we are commanded to be absolutely pure with one another. And that's not just Christian leaders. Why, why Christian leaders commanded that? Well, because that's the example for everybody in the church. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, don't look anyone look down on you, Timothy, Christian leader, because you are young. Yes, even young men. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, unholy behavior in this area in the church is not acceptable because it's not what Jesus Christ was and is like. And anyone who claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus did, John tells us. But could this be part of the solution to the problem we're considering? Men being pure like their Lord and Master. And of course, women as well. And yet we all know that we fall short, do we not? And so isn't it wonderful that we can come to Jesus with that impurity for purification, for forgiveness? Because that's exactly what he does for this woman. And that example in a woman is no less powerful and needed for men who are leading sinful lives. We can come to Jesus for forgiveness, for cleansing, for purification, to be set back on our feet, to live that life of absolute purity. So Jesus the Christ accepts with purity and forgiveness this sinful woman. But then secondly, Jesus the Christ asserts, he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much, loves much. This is the main lesson of this section that Jesus draws from this incident and his instruction to Simon. Look at with me at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown or or a little bit more accurately, for she loved much, which is what most of the translations, more literal translations, record. That is the meaning of what is said, though, as her great love has shown. It shows that she has been forgiven, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You see, Jesus asserts this principle with authority because Simon has yet to understand it. And Jesus has told a, a parable in verse 41, hasn't he? Two people owe money to a moneylender, one 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's wages, and the other about 50, which is about a month and a half. The two debts are cancelled. Who will love more? And Simon gets it right, the person who owes more. And then Jesus applies this directly to Simon. Verse 44, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was just a common courtesy. Simon didn't bother with common courtesy. So little was his love for Jesus. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which was common cultural courtesy, 
But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet, treating him with the utmost reverence. You did not pour oil on my head, which would have been hospitable to do, but she has poured perfume on my feet, expensive perfume. Perfume in modern day terms that was worth thousands of pounds. The woman shows her great love for Jesus because she's been forgiven a great debt. Simon shows a love for Jesus that is so tiny that it borders on being rude. And yet he thinks she's the unclean one and he's the clean one. And then what does Jesus say? Verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, that made them all splutter in their soup, didn't it? What do you mean? This person's sins forgiven? Yes, because she shows that she's been forgiven much because she loves much. What is your love for Jesus like? Is it like Simon's? Or is it like the woman's? Is it so small it can be barely seen or perceived by other people? It doesn't make much difference to your life? Or is it so extravagant that no one has any doubt who you love most? You're happy to be misunderstood as this woman was. You're happy to be bad-mouthed as this woman was. What is your love for Jesus like? What is my love for Jesus like? It's a challenging question, isn't it? Because Jesus is not saying, oh, there's some people out there who don't have many sins, who don't really need to love me very much. Just as he's said already earlier in this gospel, oh, there's some people out there who are righteous, they don't really need to be healed of their sin. He's not saying that. He's saying, have you seen your sin yet? Have you realized how sin sick you are? Have you seen what your heart is like, like the Apostle Paul behind this Luke who could say, because he, he's the only one who can see his heart, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner in the world because I can see what's going on in my heart and I can't see what's going on in other people's hearts. What is your love for Jesus like? Apparently, Richard E. Grant is a fan of Barbara Streisand. Uh, apparently, I just read an article in the Times uh, yesterday, or it's probably still there today. Uh, you know, he 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 fell in love with Barbara Streisand when he was twelve, and he he wrote her some letters, and then he's he's just taken an interest in her throughout his whole life. And then, you know, when he won an Oscar, he was able to he he, he was able to meet his his idol, and well, the autobiography. I mean, the weight has been worth every word. I'm not sure that's quite right, but that's what he said. Every word of our biography, he pours over and he tells the world of her in articles in the, in the media. What's your love for Jesus like? What do you think of his words? The words that he has inspired from the beginning of creation. If we were to read to the end of Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus is explaining to his disciples that Every word of the Old Testament is about him. Every word of the New Testament is about him. Do we love his words? Which we want to pour over them and tell the world. 
I mean, some people do that with Barbara Streisand, or however you pronounce it. I'm so, uh, there's supposed to be different ways of pronouncing it. Uh, uh, don't go there. Let, let's keep going. But some may say, well, I don't, leave I don't love Jesus that much because, well, I haven't got many sins to forgive. Do, do we think that Jesus says this because there are people who don't have many sins to forgive, who can just love him a little bit? No. Does your love for God's people, the church, your love for the name of Jesus Christ, for his honor and fame in the world, show that you know you have been forgiven of a deep wickedness in our hearts, my heart, your heart, a deep wickedness, that means that, but by the grace of God, are we not like that sinful woman? But by the grace of God, are we not terrorists? But by the grace of God, are we not murderers? Because we have exactly the same thing in our hearts as they do. We're made of the same stuff, and we can see it. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus accepts the devotion of this sinful woman, like you and me, and our sinfulness, and applies the forgiveness of this woman to everybody. It's a principle that covers the whole of humanity, men and women. If you are yet to come to Jesus for forgiveness, can I urge you to do it today? Because he loves to forgive. We're told in Micah that God is a God who delights to show mercy and forgiveness and bring us into a relationship with him. Why don't people come into a relationship with God they don't think they're bad enough. They don't think they're bad enough. They're like Simon. They can't see that they're just like the woman. Oh, may our hearts be transformed by the Holy Spirit that we might see our sin and see that the only hope is in the loving acceptance of this man. What a wonderful man, the Son of God. God dying on a cross because of our sin so that we can have it dealt with. Have you had your sin dealt with yet? If not, come to Jesus today. Trust in him today. But then our final point, back to the theme about women, which is clearly one of Luke's uh, preoccupations. Jesus the Christ accepts the financial support of women. Now, it would be easy to miss this. In our Bible study notes that we've been working through, they missed it. It's part of the Bible that can so easily be airbrushed out. This early band of disciples included women, women who had come from the lowest strata of society. Mary Magdalene, also thought to be a prostitute, considered in the same band or the same community as Joanna, the wife of Cusa or Chusa, or however you pronounce it, I don't know. The manager or the wife of the manager of Herod's household. I mean, that's as, as, as high as you can get without being the king. Part of the royal household. And both, we are told, were women of means. They had disposable income beyond that, beyond that needed for survival. We don't know how, but this income was being used to help support the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the 12 apostles, the holiest, Godliest men were dependent partly on the support of women for their ministry, not just Mary Magdalene and Joanna, but many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Well, so what, you might say? Well, quite.
quite a bit, actually. It means that if the church had over the years observed these verses as well as those verses later on in the Bible, equally inspired by the ministry of Paul, as is Luke's gospel, this is not something different to Pauline theology, then we see a community where women are included as partners in this great task. It means that the 1950s family model would have been challenged. It's not about women staying at home and doing the dishes and everything else, and the husband's going out and earning the money because it's really important that the husbands have that sort of stroke of earning all the money. No, Jesus accepted financial support from women in his community, as did the apostles. See, the Bible doesn't discourage women who are married from loving their husbands and bringing up their children. It encourages that, but it also encourages, and has done since Proverbs 31, about 1,000 BC, that women earn money, are involved in business, employ others, lead in the community, support their husbands if they're married financially, contribute out of their own means. And where money is involved, power follows, does it not? Now, there's much more to say about this. But if for Jesus being supported financially by women is part of this new community, then, then the church, then is it Christian for husbands to be ashamed if their wives earn more? When Jesus accepted complete financial support from others, including women? I don't think so. Is it the case that as a church, whilst we want to follow that the Bible teaches clear spiritual oversight in terms of elders and deacons as men, that we somehow ignore the nature of this community in which Paul could talk about women as his fellow co-workers, fellow apostles, with a, a, a small a. If we're to follow what Luke is teaching and what Paul taught, we seek a mutual dependence, the respect and synergy of being a good team of men and women. As Paul says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. It is not to give into the spirit of our culture or to deny the roles that Jesus Christ gives to his 12 male apostles all the things that Paul teaches, but can we see that we can over-egg that? It, it can morph into something a bit more toxic if we don't also hear what Luke is teaching us here about the nature of Christian community. Now, you will know there's far more to say on this, but just as I close, I think we need to say something about the relationship between Jesus and his heavenly father, because we might think, oh yeah, and I've heard this. Oh, I, I love Jesus. I, I, I love the way that Jesus deals with women here, that the dignity and respect that he treats them with, that the community that he founds. But what about God as father? Now, I'm, I'm sure we are not unaware of the impact that our fathers can have on us for good or ill. But we need to get our theology right here. What we see in Jesus Christ here, in the way that he relates to women, shows us what God is like. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Because Jesus is incarnate as a human being, he reveals to us exactly what the heart of God the Father is. The Father loves like Jesus loves. To say that the Father is somehow different in his love to the way that God the Son loves is to say that God is not one. Is to say that the persons of the Trinity somehow in their deity, and what is not more deity than the love the Father has, that he loves the world so much that he sends his one and only Son into the world. That how great is the love that the Heavenly Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. When we see the love of Jesus, we see the love of God the Father. Jesus loves just like God the Father loves because he is God. And his love is like God's love. So we see, this is a bit clumsy, but I'm going to throw it out there. Tell me what you think. We don't see a patriarchy. We see a patriagape. We see the love of God the Father. It involves authority. But it's the selfless love of Jesus. It's the respectful love of Jesus. It's the love of Jesus that treats women with utmost dignity and respect, as we see here. I think that's the solution. I don't know what you think. If only there were more men who wanted to live a loving life as fathers, as sons, as young men, as old men, with this kind of love, would it not change things? If they were in authority, not like patriarchal, misogynistic, tyrannical, toxic males, but like Jesus, serving like Jesus, showing love with the love of the like Jesus, if their fathers being fathers like the Heavenly Father, if their sons being like the Son of God, in their desire to follow this kind of love, would it not change things? Would we not have a different community compared to the culture around us? I think the answer is yes, isn't it? Maybe I'm wrong. One of our favorite films as a family, sorry to let this out of the bag, but we've probably talked about it incessantly over the last decade, is Les Miserables. Is that it? Well, I'm not going to look at my family. I'm sorry, I'm being embarrassing. If you haven't seen Les Miserables, um, or Les Mis, or whatever you call it, and I'm probably using the wrong expression in French, but anyway, um, if you've seen the film, remember the scene of Jean Valjean carrying his future son-in-law through the filth of the sewers of Paris. Does that not move you? That's what the love of the father is like. His love is not different to the one who left heaven and bled in torturous agony on a cross, who endured the filth of your sin and my sin, took into his body that sin and took all the, the judgment of hell in his body on the cross. That shows us what the love of the Father is like as well. It's not just Jesus' love. He walks through filth for you and me. It's what the Father is like. It's what God is like. See, no one can doubt the love of God that we see in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. But neither should we doubt the love of our Heavenly Father.
So let's just pray to him now, shall we? Let's pray. Father, you know what's going on in each of our hearts. You know what's happened in each of our lives. You know the issues that we may face because of our earthly fathers and how those of us who are fathers long to love like our heavenly father. Please help us. Help us to know what we must do, how we must be, to be like Jesus, to our wives, to our children, to our community. Help us to do the hard work of allowing you, Lord God, to change us. And Father, we pray that we would be a community that, like the Lord Jesus, like the love of the Heavenly Father, respects women with dignity and purity. And so provides an answer for them and for our culture in time that will rightly love women. And we ask this for your glory's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.